Welcome to Supplemental Materials, a podcast about genetics, genomics, and the people working on the forefront of human health. Sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, leading the search for tomorrow's cures. Learn more at jax.org, J-A-X dot O-R-G. Hi, everyone. This is Supplemental Material Episode 9. We have something a little different for this episode. This is a conversation that I had with Steve Munger, who's been on this podcast before, and Jack's associate professor, Alyssa Chesler. Uh, I recorded this when I was up in Bar Harbor, Maine this summer, and it was almost lost because of a really non-ideal recording setup. The audio quality was quite bad. However, I really wanted to share it for a couple of reasons. First, I was able to clean up the audio enough to make it listenable, but uh, more importantly, we discussed a topic that's very important and timely, drug addiction. Uh, this is a pretty long conversation, so I have it split up over two episodes. In this first episode, we discuss Alyssa's systems genetics approach for studying complex behaviors, and we talk about why she's using this approach to study addiction in particular. So I hope that, despite the bad audio quality, you enjoy it. Unfortunately, Annalisa can't be with me today because I'm up in Bar Harbor. So in Annalisa's place, I have special guest co-host, Steve Munger. Hello. Hi, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah, good to see you again. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm the the booby prize or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, we enjoyed it so much. We thought, well, we got to have him back. Sorry, Annalisa can't be here, but... Well, (laughs) anyway... um, but the, the focus of today's episode is um, Associate Professor Alyssa Chesler. Hey. Welcome, Alyssa. Hey to you. <laughs> hey, hey. Good morning. Well, let's start off by talking about your research. If I had to have a two-word description of, of what you're doing, it would be behavioral genetics. Yeah, well, it takes far more words than two when I talk about it. Um <laughs> You know, one of the biggest challenges with behavioral traits is that they're very difficult to define, and they are highly similar to one another in some ways. And so a lot of the work that I've done is to try to understand what the biology is behind each of these behaviors and how we can tell them apart. Um, How well are they classified? And that's that's a um, problem that that I think can be solved most effectively with genetics, genomics, and bioinformatics. Uh, We can look at which traits appear in in the same individuals, um, whether those individuals are mice or or people, or even um, the humble fruit fly, uh, which also behaves nicely. So let's talk a little bit about how you do that. Thinking in in terms of classical genetics, you know, the way that one might uh, approach a trait would be to mutagenize your your model of, of interest and look for phenotypes in the particular trait. So if you want to understand wing development, you might look for messed up wings or something like that. My, my first um, exposure to behavioral genetics was through Seymour Benzer's work. Um, but that's a very different approach you take. You're not looking necessarily at right. mutants that We don't making, look at wing development. And you're not looking at single genes. Well, sometimes we do, but most... Most often, we look at large collections of genes. Um, there's, uh, we, we either look at how traits are related to, uh, to one another across a population of individuals. So in that population, are there individuals that have multiple aspects of, of behavior in certain directions? And, and 
you know, when we think about variation in behavior, um, un- unlike a lot of the, the disorders and diseases that are studied in mutants, we're thinking about variation along a continuous kind of range of behavior. Uh, sometimes uh, we might say that people like Steve go too far off into one end of that range, <laughs> people like Dave maybe too far on the other end, but we m- might not, uh, depending on the individual, classify that as abnormal necessarily. But we can look at the range of behaviors and ask which traits are correlated. Uh, For example, uh, we know that there are individuals that are both anxious and high alcohol consuming. Uh, We know that that, uh, there's um, some individuals that like to seek out new situations and also tend to self-administer stimulants. Um, And so we kind of look at those relationships and, and by doing that we can, in the context of genetics and genomics, at the same time, we can find the genes that drive that variation. Then we go into making mutants to evaluate whether or not those precise genetic variants are influencing these behaviors, uh, which collections of behaviors, and by what mechanisms, uh, biological mechanisms, they vary. So your expectation is that these shared behaviors uh, that tend to come up in the same individuals over and over are most likely due to shared pathways and shared genes that are acting on them? That's right, and that may be through the influence of the environment. Um, So, for example, there may be a set of vulnerabilities to uh, stress exposure, um, and those life stresses impact certain individuals more uh, extremely uh, than, than they do others, and that's through a biological pathway that may be influenced by genetics in other individuals. So some people may be more sensitive, some people may have had more stress exposure, and some people get both, that double whammy that may push them into a more extreme state. Do you find that the same types of behaviors that you see in the same individual mice also tend to be shared in, in individual humans as well? Um, yeah, we do. We do look at a lot at how things are, are um, related in, in humans, and uh, one of the ways that we actually do that translation is through some bioinformatics techniques that we've developed. But um, yeah, the patterns of, of of correlation, for example, the relationship between alcohol drinking and alcohol withdrawal severity, is established in humans, and, and we see it in mice. In fact, we've recently found. Uh, genes and genetic variants that influence both of those traits simultaneously in mice. Um, and, and we see, um, again, those relationships between things like novelty seeking and drug self-administration, which have been observed clinically as well. When you're finding genes, when you're looking for genes and gene pathways, now you're using primarily natural genetic variation to start right, as, mm-hmm. a, as an entry point. Uh, and that's contrasted with, again, the sort of classic make make mutants, um, delet- probably deleterious mutants when you're, when you're mutagenizing, and then looking for effects on trade. So I was wondering if you'd say something about the benefits of taking one, one approach or the other. Well, we know that in the brain and in behavior, we're not looking at a single gene that's causing something to vary. Sometimes that, that's the case, but more often, if you think about what a gene usually does, it, it codes a, a protein or something that alters the activity of a protein. And uh, how that leads to behavior is through altering neurons, altering development, altering electrical potentials in the brain. And, and these are very indirect effects that get us all the way into behavior. And it takes thousands of genes and thousands of variants to really 
lead to behavioral variation in individuals. They interact with one another in many different ways. Uh, so the ultimate output or ultimate sensitivity of that system is going to be very different across the population. So what we want to do then is look at how many variants influence behavior. And we can extract that information by looking at populations where genetic differences occur in every individual across every gene in the genome. If we look at one gene at a time, we miss those interactions. We miss all of these kind of um, vari sources of variation in individuals that are uh, naturally occurring in a population. And what types of mutations tend to be tolerated in a population like this and, and contrast that to you know, the types of mutations we tend to induce when we knock out a gene? Or... Yeah, well, a lot of biology has been done by deleting genes. And if you think about that, I mean, the genes stayed in our organisms through uh, evolutionary history. It's probably necessary if the animal can live with a deleted gene, it's likely that other gene products are increased or, or, or decreased to compensate for that deletion. So it's almost like by making too big a dent, we actually can't see the effects because something comes in to, to help repair that damage or, or compensate for that damage more appropriately. But when we look at the subtle effects of normal variation, they kind of escape the big compensation effects so we can actually quantitatively, mathematically extract their influences on uh, traits. I want to transition this concept of the output of the type of strategy that you might take to extract uh, meaningful variants. Um, you, know, you, you might have some gene locus or, or even SNP. You would say, well, it accounts for X percentage of variants in that trait. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering... What, do, what exactly does that mean, biologic? Um, when we talk about how much variance is accounted for by a polymorphism, we're talking about that relative to an entire population. Mm. I can explain the score on a test of a given individual only so much by knowing that gene, mm -hmm. know, knowing what state that gene is in in that individual. If the population varies tremendously, that small effect may not explain very much variance. If the population hardly varies at all, a single perturbation may explain a lot of the state of an individual from that population. So it really depends on the population. It depends on uh, how similar individuals tend to be, how precisely we're capable of measuring that trait, um, how well we've defined it. We, we take a measurement in the lab, um, such as uh, how much a mouse walks around a uh, moderate-sized box, ask how, how, how and where they're exploring that box, that's, a, that's something that we've quantified, and that's how we're inferring that the mouse exhibits high or low exploratory activity. Um, so how, how we do their measurements, and how much the population, and the individuals in the population differ from one another really determines uh, how much variation we can explain. So the numbers are somewhat, um, uh, I'd say, I'd say somewhat meaningless in a biological yeah. sense, um, but they do tell us whether or not we've found a big one, yeah. yep. if you will, or, or a minor effect. Well, the reason I ask is because oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, you'll do a, a GWAS study on some behaviors, like schizophrenia or something mm -hmm. like that, and you'll find 
many SNPs that individually each account for some small fraction of the variance. Now, does that mean that this, this phenotype, the schizophrenia phenotype, is something that in an individual arises from many small distributed effects? Or is it the case that maybe this particular SNP has a strong effect in only a small number of people that carry that SNP? Mm -hmm. but both are possible, yeah. right? Both, both are possible explanations. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it's, it's useful to think about probability and effect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if, if you've got that, that variant, which may occur in a small fraction of individuals, it could be 100% bad for you. Um, but it, it may account for very little population variation. Um, it, it's um, the individual that we really care about, uh, and, and knowing how a population varies may help us understand what the major sources of variation are in people, among people, but we still have to do the hard work of figuring out who's got which variants and how that's affecting uh, their lives. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how did you decide to start applying these approaches towards addiction? The addiction is, is a grave um, social issue right now uh, in particular, but it, it has been um, for, for a long time. And it's a curious one um, because it's, it's uh, you know, we, we, we um, uh, like to make jokes about it because so many people... Uh, can expose themselves to alcohol in college or, mm -hmm. or drugs, and, 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 and many of them walk away, and, and a, a, another large uh, set of individuals don't. And so it's hard, for, it's hard for those individuals that simply walk away to understand the disease of those that don't. Um, and so it's, it's, and it's, it's uh, you know, recently been reported that uh, th this is a, a set of, of diseases that's affecting even um, the, the lifespan of women in this country at this point. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty serious situation. Um, and it's something that we joke about, which is really interesting. Yeah, we treat it like a moral failing or something, so, and not a, as a disease. Or a, or a badge of honor, right? Yeah, and you, you, yeah. And, and, and when you think about the way comedians talk about addiction, having addiction, even having uh, other um, uh, cognitive uh, abnormalities and things, um, you don't, you don't really, um, well, we wouldn't do it with cancer. Right. Yeah. Right. And, right. And, and yet, you know, <laughs> if you look at the costs, the public health, even, even many cancers, or, you know, certainly lung cancer caused primarily by substance abuse or substance use. Um, so, so there, there's something fundamental about it. Um, it, it, it takes um, people who uh, uh, could be uh, quite productive contributors to society, and uh, in many cases, um, uh, despite uh, continued productivity, it also uh, creates tremendous problems for their, for themselves, for their families, their communities, economic burden to, to, to all of society. So it's, it's like. Um, you know, there's 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 um, diseases and disorders that affect whole families and whole communities, but not to the broad extent that these addictions do. Do you, do you think part of why people have a hard time looking at addiction like a disease is because they have a hard time 
wrapping their their mind around the fact that genetics might affect our behavior and our tendencies more than we like to admit. No, I think that I think that some people um, fully understand it. There are people that know that they have a multi generational family history of drinking, mm-hmm. and so it's it's not like genetics should be a surprise. There, there are also, of course, behavioral factors that lead to these multi generational patterns, but um, and, and those individuals basically do understand that they are susceptible to this. Some use that information to not drink, and others use that information to drink because it feels like a um, determined characteristic. You're listening to Supplemental Materials, sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory. You know, is the, the information that comes out of your studies to be able to be applied to inform people of their genetic risks, to inform doctors of treatment alternatives. How do you see this translating? In, 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 in multiple ways, and it's, it's behavioral uh, traits are unique because we do have these, these interesting routes to um, altering behavior. Um, the you know, it's it's interesting to think like we can we can develop a cure, you know, find biological therapeutics. But I actually think that's a very hard thing to do. We're talking about uh, drugs that potentially influence the human mind, which is capable of great good and uh, great challenges. And the question is, what you know, what are, there's a lot of ethical considerations when you think about someone may be at risk for substance abuse, but. That same risk, the drivers of those risks, are parts of things that we like to think of as their humanity, creativity, personality, mm-hmm. uh, go-getterism. Mm-hmm. And so it's, do you want to treat that? You know, when you think about um, some, some, some very famous artists who, who had severe uh, mental illness, do you want to treat them? You know? Well, that's the current so, model, right? So, is if you can give an antidepressant or if you can give methadone or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. I'm Wellbutrin for smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the first time I quit smoking, I used Wellbutrin. Mm-hmm. And there's even more, many more um, uh, possibilities now. So that's one possible goal or outcome of the research. But the other interesting thing is that helping people understand the disorder as biological condition is important, and also understanding the genetic variation underlying relapse and understanding genetic variation in how easily people can shift their behavior patterns may help us identify therapeutics that are very different from what we're using now, which is often trying to block or antagonize uh, the drug, make it less effective, Mm -hmm. give it in manners that are less um, rapid in their onset, so it's less compelling, but the withdrawal is is less severe, Um, and, and we can start thinking about maybe helping people through the process of behavioral change, looking at this as a, as a disorder related to um, behavioral change as opposed to uh, simply um, this cycle of, of um, compulsive drug use and, and withdrawal. I have a sort of more general mm-hmm. question about drugs of abuse. There's, there's the question of addiction, but to become addicted, you already have to start using the drug or you have to use it enough to, to get addicted, I guess. It's definitely a prerequisite. People do this in the first place uh, for, for many reasons, maybe social or, or whatever, but um, at some point there's something rewarding about 
that experience. And it may be rewarding the first time um, for some people. Mm-hmm. Right? Some people rapidly, like, oh, this is the answer, it's it, I'm there, I got it. And then they spend the rest of their time chasing that feeling, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes unsuccessfully. Um, Do you have any insight as to what about the biology of that experience makes it appealing? Why, why is being intoxicated on alcohol appealing to people? For some people, it's relief of hyper-excitability, stress, anxiety, um, maybe a natural state of being in overdrive, if you will. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, you know, and, and, and so there's instant and significant relief mm-hmm. um, from, from drinking. Um, some people think that smoking has so much withdrawal associated with it that, you know, early on in the process, people are really just treating that psychological effect of nicotine withdrawal, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty compelling. Um, you know, but it's in any individual there's, that's, that's uh, progressing into an addiction, there comes a point when casual use, <clears throat> occasional use turns into... Uh, you you know, got to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that they can't not use it. Um, so you think about you know college students maybe party every Thursday or Friday night depending on the campus. Um, for some people they can't make it that long and it's like Tuesday and Wednesday, mm-hmm. Monday, Monday morning. You know, <laughs> I wonder you know just thinking back on this idea of alcohol uh, mm-hmm. relieving some stressful state or something like that. I mean, do you think that maybe drug use is part of some sort of equilibrium-seeking mechanism to resolve a stressful condition, be it work stress or even boredom or something like that? I think it's, yeah, I think it's rewarding to be in the zone, you know, whatever your zone is. And we have lots of ways of getting in the zone, you know, do it, do it, you know, when I get heavily involved in, in um, doing math or solving a puzzle, I'm in the zone. Yeah. You know, I like it. I, I'm, I get a little hyper even. Um, you know, and, and I think uh, it's that zone may be arousal state. It may be a pleasurable state. maybe a state of ideal anxiety, not too much, not too little. And um, life events, experiences activities can get us in those states um, and these drugs kind of act on receptors in the brain that typically our own neurotransmitters act on um, and are activating those processes artificially right and so instead of getting in the zone through doing things people are getting in their desired zone with chemicals and then these processes that kind of set in where they can't escape the use of the chemical may never get into their zone, but they do keep trying um, and require different amounts of substance over time to get into that desired state. Uh, and some, again, never, never effectively. So yeah, I think, I think there is some seeking of that desired state that gets people um, into a pattern of repeated drug use. Um, do you think that certain 
maybe aspects of modern life push people in the direction of, of certain drugs. And I'm thinking specifically now about stimulants. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always drinking coffee or, or tea, and part of that is because I like to get up in the morning and be ready to go, ready to work. Um, we, we definitely are expecting people to be on 24-7, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and um, active and engaged. Uh, for some people, that means a significant amount of coffee, and for some people that might mean uh, taking a depressant at night to reverse the effects of whatever they did to stay awake. Yeah. Um, you know, for other people, the pressure to be out in the world and socially interactive uh, creates a lot of anxiety, and uh, a lot of people start using alcohol to get out into social situations. Um, uh, there's a lot of, you know, and again, that's that's a person being in a state that they don't desire to be in, Right. I'm at work and I'm not sufficiently aroused to take the task. I'm out in a crowd and I'm not sufficiently uh, prepared to interact with other humans um, or, or whatnot. There's many different situations that call for people to be a little bit out of uh, their desired state. And and uh, this kind of is a, is a, a, a tantalizing way of trying to get into that state. And I think I think the challenge is for for many individuals it becomes uh, an obsession, it becomes a compulsion, uh, and it becomes something that uh, uh, takes them away from all the things that they were trying to get in the first place: um, productivity, engagement in society, and uh, some sort of uh, comfort and, and happiness. So I know these addictive behaviors. These this is a quantitative trait. Uh, and so there's a range across the population, but it does seem to me like there's almost a, maybe not a binary, but almost a bimodal distribution of people who, who tend to be resistant to this addictive uh, behaviors and, and people who just seem like they're very sensitive to addictions. You know, when I when I try to talk to someone who's never... Uh, been addicted to smoking like I have, and and there's you know I can't reason with it. Yeah, they've <laughs> they've tried it before, yeah. and it was you know it just you know it's very difficult for me to to um, communicate to them what it's like to be driven by the need mm-hmm. to have a cigarette first thing in the morning. You know, it's seven years since I quit, and still just even talking about it makes me want to have one. Yeah. It's it's interesting. So I'm, I've smoked cigarettes before. I've, any and I've never had the desire like the, the desire has always been sort of a social kind of you know like a but you've never needed it I've never yeah. needed it yeah. I've never I've never said oh man I really crave a cigarette but caffeine uh, you know I, I yeah. consider myself a caffeine addict right now I've been off because I haven't had the flu a month and a half ago and mm-hmm. uh, it wiped me out for a week and I got through the withdrawal symptoms and mm-hmm. it was fine um but I know at some point I will be drinking too much yeah. coffee yeah. <laughs> and it will be bad for me. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when we look at criteria for addiction that are used, um, they, they, they don't talk too much about, they, especially historically, um, there was a lot of emphasis on social consequences of use. And because coffee is available on most street corners in, in, in civilized uh, areas uh, and, and, and many, many offices and desks here, 
Uh, I rarely, for example, um, face legal problems, uh, economic hardships, or anything obtaining coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can almost say the same thing about cigarettes as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yet these other drugs, the nature of the distribution of the drugs, accessing those drugs, cause people to get into significant problems. So, you know, the question is, are there, are there health consequences? Are there other consequences that are um, affecting that individual? Or is this something that's relatively harmless? And, you know, if... if Drinking coffee has caused you to stay up so late that you're actually not performing well the next day. That's the kind of consequence of excessive uncontrolled use that you might find. So some addictions are benign, you would argue. You know, it's, it's um, somewhat benign, yeah, yeah. right? Like certainly less harmful. You know, you're thinking about though. Taking an individual who may spend 24 hours doing a large variety of things, yeah. even mice, uh, they don't they, they have a large behavioral repertoire, um, and they get into a very small world, you know, that's engaged around drug seeking and drug taking and um, maybe sleeping it off and taking some more, you know, and that's and that's a very small world for people that could be going out and doing many other things. Um, with their time and with their lives. I've had a lot of friends and family who have battled addiction, some successfully and some not. And those that have successfully battled addiction, I often find that they tend to uh, take that, that compulsion or something and apply it somewhere else. Do you find that there's, um, there's behaviors that might be detected early on, even in children, that then are predictive of tendency toward addictive behavior behavior later on yeah there's some interesting ones um, something you can try at home with any small child uh, and even some adults is um, a classic called the marshmallow task yeah. uh, you just set a marshmallow on a plate in front of your small child um, and say uh, you know if, if I come back in five minutes and that marshmallow is still there I'll give you a second marshmallow and um, there's a tremendous range of variation in the extent to which uh, children can avoid eating that marshmallow for five minutes. And uh, to see the videos, uh, some of my colleagues and uh, people that are uh, teaching our addiction course um, actually show these movies of children sitting on their hands, closing their eyes, squirming desperately in an effort to not eat a marshmallow. And there's other kids that are, you know, do to do singing along and happily not eating the marshmallow, and yeah, there are those that just can't do it, they just eat the marshmallow. Um, so, you know, that's sort of an impulsivity, a failure to suppress a behavioral response, um, and, and that definitely does um, predict, but doesn't determine substance abuse. That, that study is also predictive of later on education attainment, right? I believe so, and it's, you know, and it's, it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, again, it's a double-edged sword, right? Do you want to, it's, there is some value. I'm going to, I'm going to, gratification. I'm going to, um, you know, get, get, um, potentially to, uh, what should I say? Not, maybe not anthropomorphic, but, uh, you know, the, there's something useful about what's in the next valley sometimes. If there's no food in this valley, I, it, it would be helpful to all of us if one of us went out and 
grab that next valley and 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 that may be through um, you know entrepreneurism or or inventiveness or uh, aggression that gets them into that new territory um, to discover a new food source or a new water source or other resources that are needed and so some of that's impulsivity if if everyone wanted to stay home and um, keep it nice and simple how it was we wouldn't have a lot of the uh, great new inventions uh, that we've, we've had and all the progress and discovery and so um, those of us who are addicted to science uh, in some way and I use that term addiction very loosely in that sense uh, you know but people that are staying up in the lab uh, can't can't get away um, uh, pipetting and doing their experiments all night analyzing data until they have an answer um, pacing around the lab demanding uh, uh, results from their, their students uh, you know this is this is good right this drives us forward um, to a point yeah uh, you know and and then to another point it, so the genetic variation that causes these uh, this impulsivity phenotype has been selected for throughout history you're saying some some amount of it I, you know I don't know if it's been selected for but I'd say it can you can conceive of it conferring an advantage um, you know and and so so yeah it's not it's not there by accident. Natural yeah. pain suppression is a pretty yeah. good thing if you need to uh, <clears throat> do that to carry on feeding yourself and getting away from predators. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot that we gain from the same mechanisms. Reward is good. It means if I do something that gets me the result I want, I should do it again. You know, I mean, we don't want to stop that. Yeah. Like, there'd be very little point in doing things, like anhedonia, right? Like, nothing is pleasurable <laughs> or rewarding. Um, you know, that's, so again, it's it becomes very controversial to say, oh, that person's likely to become an addict, let's stop it. What we want to teach people is what it means to transition into that chronic use. What it what, when are you becoming an addict? And it's not the first time you're sleeping under a bridge. You've been listening to Supplemental Materials, a podcast about genetic science and the people working on the forefront of human health. Sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, leading the search for tomorrow's cures. Learn more at jax.org, J-A-X dot O-R-G.